You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Kate Anderson Brower, who you've probably heard of or seen her name as much as we hang out in the bookstores. She has written several books focusing on the White House and its occupants and perhaps uh, people who would like to be occupants, and that's the vice presidents. She uh, is a former, she is a CNN contributor, and she covered the Obama administration for Bloomberg News. She worked for CBS News and was a Fox News producer. She's written for the New York Times, Vanity Fair, and the Washington Post. Her books are terrific. They've had an impact, and they've told stories that have not yet been told prior to her scholarship. We are joined today by the real strong Chicagoan at heart in his sports teams, Mr. Pete Seat, who is a vice president at Bose Public Affairs Group. All of you probably know him and are aware of his immense communications skills, but he is actually mentioned in Kate's latest book, much more prominently than I was mentioned in Tom Lobianco's book about uh, my former boss, Mike Pence. Pete, you have the football. Well, thank you, Robert and Kate. It's great to talk to you. Um, Let's... uh, Let's just dive right in. Uh, Your new book, Team of Five, you've written previously about the behind the scenes staff that really makes the White House hum, the residents. You've followed uh, the the lives of the first ladies and first women. And then you wrote about the vice presidents, as Robert mentioned in uh, your book, First in Line. Was it a foregone conclusion that your next focus was going to be the presidents? No, really, I didn't know that I was going to take on this project um, because, you know, I'm always trying to kind of think of new ways of looking at the White House, like you said, and from a different perspective. I'm usually drawn to women's stories, really. Um, And obviously none of the former presidents are women yet. So, you know, it was dealing with um, these men that I think we know so well, but we don't really know. And I think that's, that really was what led me to do it. And I remembered on inauguration day when uh, Donald Trump was sworn in and seeing that just the image of uh, the helicopter taking off from the Capitol, you know, it's such a visceral, it's just, you, you really feel this kind of emotional reaction to seeing the former president and former first lady leave, no matter who they are, um, because you've, you've seen them for four, eight years of your life. And, and so they take on a meaning for you. And I wondered what happens when they leave. And, you know, the, the helicopter usually circles around the white house and they get to say goodbye 
the last time to the home they lived in for so many years. And I wanted to get into what happens when you go from being the most powerful person in the world to being a um, kind of a semi-private citizen. Yeah. So on, on that note, uh, you know, we see the, we watch the transition of power, this really majestic, uh, peaceful transfer, which is really a, a stark contrast to the turmoil we see in other parts of the world and how transfers of power happen there. But there's also the transition to normality for these presidents, the, the outgoing presidents going from being the leader of the free world to being what, you know, George W. Bush said would, uh, was the title that meant more to him than any other, and that is citizen of the United States. How do they make that transition? What's the, the mental leap they have to make to go from being that former leader of the free world to just being a regular Joe? You know, I don't think any of them really ever become regular Joes, right? And maybe to your point, Bush is the only one that has been able to kind of go back to, as they say, the promised land in Texas and, and retire. And he's really stayed out of the public eye as, as much as any president in recent history, like his father, George H.W. Bush. He's been very careful not to weigh in. Um, but I think they struggle with it. And, you know, there are so many stories and I have some in the book about how they, you know, to them, a decision would ha would be life and death and would have to be made right away. Right. And there's a great story about Obama when he was negotiating his book deal. And he said to his agents, you know, um, well, I'd love to go ahead and talk to some editors. And the, the book agent said, OK, well, I'll set up some meetings next week. And Obama was like, next week. I mean, in my life, it would be someone would die if you waited a week to, to get something done. Everything is done immediately and it's it's high risk. And I think that that's the hardest thing. And Bush has even talked about how difficult it was going from you know, going 100 miles an hour to 15 miles and kind of slowing down. And what is that like? I think they struggle with it. I know people around Bill Clinton were really worried about it. And they were worried about him and how he was handling going back to private life. And of course, I get into the book and how he was consumed by, you know, the pardons and the controversies that he left behind when he left the White House. So you write about Harry Truman and how he would wander around Independence, Missouri every day, taking a walk. Dwight Eisenhower didn't know what dial tone was because he was so used to operators scheduling calls and setting them up. Who had the hardest transition based on your research? Mm, that's a really good question. I mean, there are also stories about, you know, Ronald Reagan sitting in his office the next morning, the day after he left office, and he's sitting in Century Plaza, you know, in California answering phones. And he was, you know, so if you called up Reagan's office the day after he left, you would get him um, because they want to go in, you know, 7 a.m. They are working. They're not used to slowing down. I would say of um, of the five former presidents in the book, the one who had the hardest transition, I actually think was Jimmy Carter because he was a one-term president. And, you know, I interviewed Carter for the book and he and Rosalind Carter are still resentful that they lost. Um, they are, they still take it really personally. Rosalind says she never slept better than when knowing that her husband was president. And after that moment, she, she has trouble sleeping at night. You know, it's just, they have not gotten over that a decades later. 
And it took him a long time to come up with the Carter Center. Um, and we know him as a president with very mixed reviews on his actual presidency, but a very powerful and you know impactful post-presidency. And he came up with the idea for the Carter Center, waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, realizing, you know, this is what we have to do. And he just kind of had this vision um, about really it started with, with monitoring elections around the world. Um, but I, I think Carter, it's ironic because he's probably been the most successful former president we've ever had. But he hasn't really, and you write about the unwritten rules of this presidential club, he hasn't really followed all of the rules that are outlined in your book, specifically when it comes to attacking his successors. You know, and that's something that a lot of the presidents have struggled with. You know, George W. Bush, there were a few moments during the Obama years that he wanted to speak out, and Obama has wanted to speak out a few times during the Trump years. But what's interesting, kind of putting together this book and your book about the vice presidents, it's so interesting that the vice presidents, especially in the case of Bush and Obama, Dick Cheney and Biden, are still playing the role of attack dog. They're kind of they're the ones that are out there giving the presidents a little bit of cover when when you know that Bush and Obama really want to be in the fight and defend their legacy. That's true. And you don't see Walter Mondale going out there, you know, defending, you know, Jimmy Carter or getting in there I mean, because Jimmy Carter doesn't need it. He goes out there and like you said, he breaks almost every rule of the President's Club. And that's why, and we talked about this, Pete, this, this picture that you were in the room for, which is the cover of my book. It's very hard to get a picture of Jimmy Carter not standing off to the side and not kind of awkwardly, you know, um, peering in from the outside. And it's very physical. I mean, you actually see it, that he is an outsider. And he did absolutely criticize every single president in this shot, including Bush 41. I mean, he, Carter lobbied members of the UN Security Council not to go into the uh, Persian Gulf War. I mean, this is just some, this is just kind of unheard of what he did. And it was seen as a betrayal of the, um, the sitting president. And that is like one of the key rules is, is not criticizing the sitting president. And Carter again and again has done it. So what's so interesting, too, about the book is you you talk about the relationships between the presidents and a lot of those relationships, you know, are are rather frigid um, mm -hmm. when they're in office and tend to thaw once they're out of office. But the one that I really like and I'd love you to, to tell us about a little bit more real quick, because we, we know about Clinton and 41. We've seen the photos of George W. Bush and Michelle Obama, but the relationship between 41 and Obama and the fact that Obama was the last president to see 41 alive is just fascinating. Can you take us through that a little bit? Yeah, I was really surprised by that myself because I would have thought that the first, I mean, that the last president um, Bush 41 would have seen alive would have been either his son or Bill Clinton because those are the stories we always hear about. But I interviewed Jean Becker, who is the chief of staff to the Bush family senior, and she's like a member of the family, so close to them. And she describes this uh, visit that, that took months in the making. Obama was coming to Houston. George H.W. Bush was not doing well. This is three days before he passed away. You know, he had been in a wheelchair. He was barely able to speak. And um, Obama, you know, 
the Obama's chief of staff asked Gene, you know, are, do you, are you ready for him to come? Do you still want him to come and visit? And uh, Gene said, you know, she, she said she had never said this to anyone before, but she honestly wasn't sure if Bush would be alive for the visit. You know, things were that bad. And when Obama walked in, she whispered to him, you know, if it was anyone but you, we'd be canceling this. And he came in and he spent about an hour with Bush Sr. Neil Bush was in the room and John Meacham was there. And um, he's very close with the Bush family, the historian. And they spoke about a whole range of things. I pressed Neil to try to find out what, what exactly they talked about, but um, I'm sure Trump was one of the topics. And at the end of the conversation, Obama asked for time alone with Bush and they spoke for you know five or ten minutes alone and hopefully Obama will write about that in his memoir but it's just a very um, I think an important anecdote about these two men who had so little in common but yet you know Obama really respected Bush as the last among the last of the greatest generation a World War II vet you know and, and I think Bush was very moved by Obama as the first African-American president. So I, I thought that was interesting to see that the two of them had had a relationship that I don't think people really know much about. So let's let's turn to um, the other president you interviewed for this book, and that's the sitting president, the incumbent, Donald Trump. You interviewed him in the Oval Office. And I, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone. He's been pretty outspoken about this. He doesn't see himself as fitting into the club of contemporary presidents, the living ex-presidents. But, you know, I, I wonder when you're in the Oval Office, you see photos of it and video flanking him on either side of the Resolute desk. You've got um, Andrew Jackson on one side. You've got Abraham Lincoln on the other. At one point, it was Thomas Jefferson. Do you think he sees himself fitting into the historical club of presidents better than he sees himself fitting into the contemporary society? I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think he's more in the mold of kind of a Teddy Roosevelt kind of brash a disruptor than he is any of these current modern presidents, right? I mean, he, he talks about, as you said, Andrew Jackson, he talks about, um, he mentioned Nixon recently, which was kind of an odd thing to do, but um he talks about the former, you know, deceased presidents in glowing terms, but not the living ones. And so I think it's because he feels really alienated and isolated from this batch of presidents. And I, I you know, nothing he says is that shocking, like you said. But one thing that was surprising was to me was that he said he's open to a relationship to rekindling a friendship with Bill Clinton as though that was possible, because I can't imagine Bill Clinton wanting that, um, or Donald Trump really wanting that. Um, so that surprised me. And also, uh, it surprised me that he was so interested in the topic, that you know he wanted to not only talk about these men and kind of bash them, which I think we would expect, but he wanted to, um, sort of think about himself in the broader scope of history. And, you know, I asked him where he'd have his presidential library and he was very intrigued by that, you know, because he said he hasn't thought much about it, but he knows real estate better than anyone. So he thinks Florida or New York. Um, 
But so I think that there's a part of the, the part of the presidency that he loves is the power and the, uh, you know, the position is awe-inspiring for anybody. And so I think he liked to talk about himself in terms of where he fits in, in history, you know, 500 years from now, how will people view him? Um, that would actually be a question that would be great to ask him. I didn't, I didn't get to ask him that, you know, which president is he most like and how, how in 500 years will people look at him? He'd probably say is the best president in history, right? But well, he's already saying that to some extent. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, no one has dealt with the problems he has dealt with yeah. um, since he's been president. But it's, it's interesting you you mentioned how he might rekindle a relationship with Bill Clinton because, you know, you see this theme throughout the book where, you know, Carter beat Ford, Reagan beat Carter, Clinton beat Bush 41. And in most cases, they became friends afterwards after you know after ford was out he and carter became friends i think it was when they went to uh, mm-hmm. anwar sadat's funeral aboard um what was not air force one because the president wasn't there but um similarly with bush 41 and clinton they became friends after clinton was out of office so i i wonder if there could be and on top of that the the strongest relationships seem to be uh inter-party relationships as opposed to intra-party because you've got some of that rivalry when you're talking about Democrats and Republicans, but it's the, it's those of the opposite party. So to me, it makes sense. And knowing their relationship pre-presidency between Clinton and Trump, that if anyone's going to get along after this, it would be those two. It does go against logic though, doesn't it? That there is more of a kinship between a in, in modern history between Democrats and Republicans in the, in the former, you know, presidential years than between Republicans. I mean, looking at Ford and Carter, such a great example of um, two people who could not stand each other. And then the Clinton and Bush 41 famously. But I think you're right. I think that they're, I mean, listen, Clinton was friends with friends. They used each other. You know, he went to his wedding and then Trump gave them money. Um, and Hillary was actually, she sat in the front pew of the church, which I didn't realize. And when I interviewed Trump, he mentioned, the president mentioned that, you know, um, did you see the photo of, of the Clintons with us? And it's like, of course, the whole world has seen that photo. You don't need to remind anybody about that photo. Um, and Clinton even had, I was surprised to learn that Clinton still had his locker at uh, one of Trump's golf clubs in 2016, up through the election. So he was still a member of this club. Um, so I think that the two of them kind of, you're right, I think the two of them, of all of the former presidents, could potentially be friends in the kind of way that they're not really ever going to be friends. I mean, sort of go back to using each other. But I can't imagine after what happened in 2016 uh, and since, about you know the lock her up chance, and then also the bringing Juanita Broderick and these other women to that debate. I think that 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 would be a bridge too far for for anybody. I think, but you never know. I mean, the Clintons aren't really <laughs> known for being the most moral of the bunch. I mean, they might they might there might be a time where they could eventually mend fences, but I would be shocked. So real quick, I would love to go into the Oval Office when you're sitting with the president. It's about four pages into the book. You tell the story 
about how, and we've heard part of this before, where he would summon an aide during interviews or meetings with governors or senators to bring this list of accomplishments of his administration. And he would, you know, they bring the printout hot off the press and he'd give it to him and say, look at all the things that we've done. But in the packet that you got, there was something else. And I'd love for you to tell listeners what was in that packet and what was going through your head when you saw that. Well, so he brought out, uh, he, he summoned his aide to get the list of accomplishments. And then she also brought out a letter from Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, that was top secret. It basically had top secret on it. It was very funny. And, and she, you know, she brought it out and she said, here's the, you know, the thing he had asked for, the list of accomplishments. And then he took the Kim Jong-un in her, uh, letter and said, well, I didn't ask for this. You weren't supposed to have brought this, but okay, fine. And then he sort of moved it towards me across the table and said, you can look at this briefly, but like, you know, you're not, don't write about this. This is off the record. And Sarah Sanders was there and I asked if I could take a photo. And of course she said no. Um, but it was the, on one side, it was in Korean. The other side, it was the English translation. And I, I sort of briefly got to see what it was, but, and then he grabbed it away from me after like a, a less than a minute and it seems to me that it was staged and thinking about it because I obviously I don't think that they're showing a reporter they've never met before to, I mean I hope not top secret information right that would be your hope um and I think it was to show you know he that he's got this relationship with the North Korean leader. No other president has ever had this. And isn't this amazing? I mean, that seemed to be very obviously what, what that was about. But it was so choreographed. It was just fascinating to me. Come on, Pete. You work. You did comms in the White House. Isn't yeah, what do you, what you do? Come <laughs> on. I was going to say choreographed that? and Donald Trump. I've never heard of that before. It <laughs> yeah. sounds so unlike him. Didn't you just pass some cables from, you know, Moscow yeah. over what do, to, yeah what do you make of that is that is that on is that uh on purpose because like you said I don't know how I mean I don't know how choreographed they are about anything honestly to be honest I I could not imagine something like that well one I couldn't imagine something like that happening in the George W Bush White House but most importantly I couldn't imagine a staffer making a mistake of that magnitude I mean, the people who were surrounding the president were top-notch. I speak for everyone other than myself. Were top-notch, incredible at their jobs. And you don't just accidentally grab a letter, a wire from Kim Jong-un and <laughs> hand it to someone. Um, that just doesn't happen. So I, I, I have to agree with you. I mean, I, I don't work there. I don't know the people that well. But I'd have to assume that there was some level of choreography. Was it just sitting next to the lunch menu and they just picked yeah. up the wrong one? It was waiting to be framed so they could put it up on the wall, maybe. <laughs> Pete, Pete worked in the Oval Office, worked in the White House. And uh, one of the reasons, besides the fact that I consider him a good friend and an, an admirer of his skills, uh, the company he works for where he's vice president, Bose Public Affairs Group, is a sponsor of the Leaders and Legends podcast. And we hope to work with Pete. He's going to come back with some more questions, but Pete and I hopefully are going to do some more interviews together because Pete's Rolodex is very, very strong. And we wouldn't have a Kate on the podcast without him. Thank you, Pete, very much. You got it. 
just a couple of questions about that book. One of the, and I think there maybe is some bit of a nod. Uh, one of the best books I have ever read is The President's Club, the book by Nancy Gibbs and Michael Duffy. Um, I actually emailed Ms. Gibbs to see if she would come on the podcast. Maybe I'll get lucky. Uh, but one of the most, most fascinating parts about that book, and you mentioned his name just a few seconds ago, so I'll bring it up again, was how influential Nixon was with other presidents as a foreign policy and political advisor after he left the White House and what we can all agree was a disgrace. You mentioned that Trump had said his name. Did any of the other presidents talk about Nixon and how they got along with him and if they used him for advice? He died in 94, but he still had an impact. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Nixon came to the White House several times when Clinton was president and talked to him about foreign policy. Um, and I have in the book this kind of tense scene where Nixon was getting frustrated that he wasn't being invited to the White House. And he desperately wanted to still be influential, you know. And uh, Clinton invited him and they, they spoke several times um, on the phone and in person. And when Nixon died, you know, Clinton gave a really moving eulogy and um, Hillary Clinton too. I mean, it was really surprising because her father had died shortly before Nixon passed away. And so if you watch her um, talk about Nixon in the Rose Garden, I believe it was, and I have it in the book, she's emotional. And here she was part of the Watergate investigation, you know? So to think of that I think genuine empathy that they they have for each other because this was obviously you know as you said ninety four so this is well before Lewinsky and these other scandals but Whitewater was going on at the time um, there was always a scandal engulfing the Clinton White House right and so I think that they sort of started to see the complexities of the job and maybe had a little bit more of a sense of empathy. I know from my reporting that when Pat, from my book about first ladies, Pat Nixon had gotten into um, some trouble and uh, Hillary Clinton overheard somebody on the staff making a derogatory comment. I can't remember what it was about Pat Nixon and Hillary Clinton's, you know, stood up for her and said, you know, no one knows how hard this job is until you've had it. So I do think there is a sense of, you know, empathy there that is built after, you know, you can only know what this job is like after after being in it. And there are only four men alive who, who have held the position before. So I think they, they tend to not overlook controversies, but I think move past them a little bit more quickly than maybe the general public would. Um, but I think the Nixon relationship with Clinton is really interesting. Well, they're both brainiacs. They're both policy nerds. Yeah. They're both hyper-political. And I say that as a compliment, of course. And so you could see that they had, although Nixon certainly couldn't have competed with Bill Clinton in the in the libido discussion, <laughs> uh, and Nixon was kind of famously cold, even though he did propose to his uh, future first lady on their first date, and then she would go out with other men and Nixon would drive her on those dates. Yeah. That's romance. Hmm. But did you get a sense in researching the book and talking to the presidents that they look forward to those kind of rare occasions when they're all together? Usually it happens at a funeral or it happens when they get to open their presidential library. 
you think a sense it's like, you know, I have, you know, where George Bush says, you know, I haven't seen Ronald Reagan in a while or I haven't seen Jerry Ford because a lot of these guys have known each other for decades. They served in Congress together. They were governors at the same time. They worked in each other's administration somehow or some way or were aware of them. Is that is are those sorts of gatherings were like, man, I'm looking forward to it. Or was it more drudgery? You know, I mean, I think it depends, obviously, on the person. I think, you know, with Ford and, and Carter, you know, Carter said he loved talking to Ford so much and he would look for any excuse to see him and ride in the same car with him and take a longer route to get to whatever event they were going to so they could chat. Um, I think the other ones are just much more complicated. You know, uh, Carter feels like Obama, for instance, has not asked for enough advice and paid them enough uh, respect. And um, so I think that they're all very, very different people. I, I also think, you know, when I set out to write the book, I had hoped that maybe there was some kind of text chain or something among them, right? That they were all like, you know, in, in some real club <laughs> and they would meet for coffee. And I don't know, I had this, this idea. And, and one of Obama's aides said, I love that idea as a work of fiction. It is not the reality. Their, their staffs, and Pete would know this, their staffs are in touch with each other. And there is a genuine you know, line of communication, except Trump is kind of an island on his own there. But there is communication among the aides and the chiefs of staff, but not, not among the former presidents in the way I was hoping to see. You know, they, so in other words, I don't think that they look forward to those events, no. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I know Carter was even emotional talking about Gerald Ford now. So I think that that was a great example, but I don't think the other former presidents have a lot of, um, you know, they're, they're not excited to go to library openings per se, but they definitely will go. And that's why I was so surprised when I asked Trump if he would go to Obama's library opening and he said, no, and why would he even invite me? And I think that that says a lot. Right, like, why would he invite you? Well, because every single president is invited and they always go, but you got to appreciate Trump's um, kind of no holds barred, kind of says, <laughs> says what he thinks right away, right? Yeah, um, for someone who beats up on the media a lot, in some ways he's a journalist dream because he just says it. Yep, I mean, that's the, the but it's also, a little negative too, because can you, you know, I walked out of that interview with Trump and my husband said, well, what, what did he say? What was the most surprising part? And it's like, he can't say anything that's surprising. I think the only surprising thing he could say, I mean, I think he did say some surprising things in the book, but the only surprising thing he would say, I think is if he would say, you know what? I have been too hard on them. I owe all of them an apology. And, and I want to make that clear right now. And that, that I think would, would take you by surprise, right? The president of the United States, Donald Trump, apologizing. Yes, that would take me by surprise. <laughs> as, as Can I make that umbrella statement about anything? <laughs> I used to work uh, for the mayor of Indianapolis, a retired Marine uh, who served his country with distinction in the first Gulf War. And as, as Pete will tell you, is one of the absolute kindest and greatest men you'll ever meet i get all mm. anyway i asked him after he was mayor you know what do you miss most about it i mean obviously the power level isn't close but what do you miss most he he responded without missing a beat parking <laughs> what do these former presidents 
miss most about occupying the office? Got to think that the food is up there, right? And the staff and people doing everything for them, like exactly as you're saying. And and really hail to the chief playing every time they walk in a room and, you know, everyone holding their breath and, and getting all excited to see them. I mean, I think that, of course, former presidents have, um, there's a level of that, but it's, it's you know, the hundred people that work in the residence, the butlers, the housekeepers, the cooks, suddenly they're not there. Lady Bird Johnson has a great quote from her diary where she talks about going back to Texas and, you know, they're there and there's like a pile of luggage. And she said she felt like Cinderella, you know, like suddenly she, you know, <laughs> everything was done, was over, you know, and nobody was there to help anymore. And I think that's a huge change. And I think, you know, the Bushes, Barbara Bush had a, there's a scene in the book where she's, you know, she's going, she went to Sam's Club for the first time and bought a giant jar of spaghetti sauce. And then she cooked spaghetti and the jar fell on the floor and she ended up calling out for pizza. But it's like this, they have not cooked for themselves. <laughs> they don't know, you know, and she made some joke about, well, I didn't know if you could call out for pizza. I didn't know that was possible. You know, I, I hope that was a joke. I don't know. But it's I would have to think the absence of traffic jams would be there. Like they just don't yeah. wait in traffic. They don't, they don't have to do that. Helicopters everywhere. Right. What do you make Robert of, of I'm always interested in um, Mike Pence and hit. And I know you said you worked for him. Do you feel like he is, um, fulfilled in this role as vice president? Is this what he signed up for? Well, everyone's got a little bit of ambition, right? And when you put your name on the ballot, no matter what your office is, um, I, I don't, I would love to know what he is thinking a lot of the times and what his initial sort of um, Pavlovian reaction to some of the things that are said and done uh, actually are, you know, he's been personally very kind to me, actually stepped in on a, on a, when I was, I had a contract issue with the party and, and he actually, he personally stepped in and made sure that I got paid a significant amount of money that was owed to me, contractually owed to me. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. Um, yeah. I was not a part of, of any of his campaigns, uh, mostly because there's some differing significantly, but differing uh, views on LGBT issues. Um, but I consider him an honorable man and a friend. And, and I sometimes, you know, wonder, I think he's gotten too much abuse for, you know, people say he's a lap dog. Well, they say that about every vice president. I mean, no vice president is going to step out and say, you know, what the hell are you doing publicly? I mean, if Al Gore can keep it together, then certainly, you know, Mike Pence can. Uh, one of the, another terrific book, which I'm sure you've either read or come across is the Jules Whitcover book about Nixon and Agnew called Strange Bedfellows. Yep, if, I have it. If you have, if, if people listen to this podcast, if you have not read that book and you like political history, you should read that book. That I, how in the hell those guys came together, stayed together, and then Agnew just left. I mean, he just resigned. And I don't think Nixon ever talked to him again. 
That's true. Well, I mean, Anya was forced out, right? Because of all of this. Yeah, because of massive corruption as governor that extended into his time as vice president. But Agnew walked out of the Oval Office after saying, yeah, I'm leaving. And they never spoke again. I think Agnew went to Nixon's funeral. So those sorts. Go ahead, because I want to ask you about your book about vice presidents. That's how I was transitioning to it. You're reminding me, and and I think I can't remember if it's in the book I wrote or in Jules Wickover's book about um, Nixon and Agnew, and Agnew didn't want to go to the funeral. And there was like some back and forth. He didn't want to go to Nixon's funeral. And there was some back and forth on that because he just resented him so much for basically, I mean, Nixon just kind of, like you said, let him go, never spoke again. I mean, that that does say a lot. I, I think that way people are treated behind the scenes and what you just said about Mike Pence helping you out in a situation. Um, And that's what I thought when I was reporting on the residents, the way people are fascinated by how people in position of power treat people, you know, who maybe don't have as much power. And that, that does say something about Nixon and kind of how Machiavellian he was right too, that he, he, he had no use for Agnew anymore. And he probably resented him mightily for putting him in that position, right? Well, well, he th- well, Nixon thought that Agnew was his ticket out of impeachment, that, that Agnew was so hated by the Democrats that they wouldn't impeach Nixon and elevate Agnew to the presidency. So when Agnew got, you know, basically in what I think Elliot Richardson called the most slam dunk case of public corruption he had ever seen, when Agnew was forced out and Nixon has to choose a new vice president, he has to choose. So we're talking the summer of 73 Watergate summer. Nixon has to choose someone who is acceptable as president. Once he does that and chooses Ford, then a huge roadblock to pushing Nixon out of the office has now been removed. Impeachment was a hell of a lot easier with Ford becoming president than Agnew becoming president. And Nixon knew that. Yeah. So fascinating. Actually, you know, I have to say this when, uh, when Kate and I were emailing back and forth about scheduling this podcast, I suggested today's date, which is June 17th, because today is the 48th anniversary of the Watergate break-in that changed so much for so many. We are talking to Kate Anderson Brower. She has written several books, First in Line, Presidents, Vice Presidents, and the Pursuit of Power, First Women, The Grace and Power of America's Modern First Ladies, The Residents, Inside the Private World of the White House, and Team of Five, The President's Club in the Age of Trump. And you can find all these books, katebrower.com, and we will post the website so that you can order them. Uh, I want to ask a couple more questions before we turn it over to uh, Pete Seat. In your book, First in Line, Presidents, Vice Presidents, and the Pursuit of Power, you write that there's a mix of resentment and jealousy between the number one and the number two. It gets manifested when it comes to the vice president deciding to run for the top office. In particular, I would like to ask you about Al Gore and Bill Clinton in 2000. I believe Al Gore should have won that race in a walk. He lost not only his home state, but he lost Bill Clinton's home state. Mm -hmm. What was their relationship during that election period. Well, I mean, it's, it is incredible to think that Al Gore didn't even send Bill Clinton to Arkansas, right? I mean, what yes. A- <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
if hindsight is, you know, in 2020, right? So he he probably greatly uh, wishes he had, but at the time they were looking at polling numbers and it just made no sense. Women um, were especially upset with Clinton about Monica Lewinsky and, um, you know, I interviewed Al Gore for that book and it was probably the hardest interview I've ever <laughs> had to get because it took a long time to get. I ended up doing it on the phone, which I don't love. And it was um, because I couldn't tell what his, you know, facial expressions sure. were. And I said to him, I asked him the question um, and I would love to know an honest answer to it. He kind of wouldn't give me one, but you know, what was it like working for Bill Clinton when you had the most powerful first lady in history? Um, you know, how, how did you navigate that? Cause there's lots of reporting out there. And I, I interviewed a bunch of people who said that there was constant, you know, battling between the vice president and, and the East, well, the first lady, she didn't have an East wing, right. You know, it was, um, unprecedented. Hillary Clinton had a, an office in the West wing. Now we don't really bat an eye at that because it was, so does Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. But at the time it was a huge problem for them. And, she, and Hillary always wished that she had not done that and could have taken that back and moved the office actually, but it was too late. Um, but anyway, to answer your question, when I asked Al Gore that question, he laughed and said, I think our interview is almost over. You're and I and he just started talking. So <laughs> one thing that I've learned in these podcasts, interviews, one thing I've learned in these podcast interviews, and I don't ask uncomfortable questions because I want the podcast to be comfortable. But one thing I did learn is if you've got a kind of a tougher question, save it to the end. Yeah. <laughs> right. I won't I do that. I won't do that to you, but yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I should have taken that uh, a note from you there. Cause I just, I needed, I didn't know how long I had with him. So I just kind of like went through and it was probably like the third or fourth question I asked. And he, I'm sure has been asked that question a million times. And I'm sure every time he kind of waves it off. Cause I've never seen him really directly answer that question. Of course it was difficult. Of course it, it complicated everything and healthcare failed because of their mismanagement of it and her role in it really um so yeah i mean i think that you know he didn't use bill clinton and he should have and they had a terrible relationship towards the end and and you know he really resented clinton for putting him in that awful position because like you said every vice president like the reason why mike pence is there right is right. wants to run for president in 2024 i mean that's I would assume there's not that many who choose not to run. I mean, you have Biden and Cheney, which are which are uh, recent, but most of them. I mean, that's that is why they're there. Yeah. Let me ask you another quick question about uh, vice presidents. And do they ever repair their relationship? I mean, when it, it's weird to think, like we were talking about with Nixon and Agnew, here they are, president and vice president of the United States. Suppose you'd think they work close together and convivially and, and in a fraternity and want to do the best things. Often that's not the case. And then they go their separate ways. Do you have an example of a president and a vice president who've kind of stayed close? Even Cheney and Bush, Pete, I would defer to you, yeah. but Cheney and Bush appear to be the Scooter Libby thing has pushed them away. Uh, George Bush becomes president when Reagan leaves. I don't know about Cotter Mondale, but are there is there an example of two folks who come together and like, hey, yeah, we're still pals. 
I would say Bush 41 and Quayle, right? Like, I mean, they, I, I talked to Dan Quayle and he said, you know, he was thrown under the bus, he thinks during that campaign. Um, and that, you know, but, but he, W wanted Quayle to be pushed off the ticket during the reelection and Bush, you know, wouldn't do it wisely. Cause I think it always makes you look weak if you if you push your VP off the ticket it makes you look like you think you've made a bad choice. So he was, you know, he lost those. So maybe he should have taken W's advice and and replaced Quail because Quail was um, you know, the whole potato thing, whether it's right or wrong, it, it kind of became what he's known for, right? But he really respected Bush 41. And I think that that's, you know, he blamed Bush's aides and not Bush himself right. for how he was used as a scapegoat. One of your books is called First Women, The Grace and Power of America's Modern First Ladies. As a way of promoting my Leaders and Legends podcast, I'll do little quizzes or little like contests and people vote and then I give some money to charity or I do little Mount Rushmore's where I like, this is my Mount Rushmore of the you know four greatest movies of the 80s. And I basically just put Caddyshack one, two, three, <laughs> and four. Right, Pete? Anyway, and so not long ago, I did one on the, the four most impactful and influential women in American history. Oh. And my number one was Eleanor Roosevelt. But the, the one that I did not include in the fourth position and I wanted to and I just didn't is Lady Bird Johnson, who I think is one of the most underrated people in modern American history. Her impact on how we treat nature is almost immeasurable. You wrote this book. Am I way off base? Oh, no. I mean, I think she's incredible. And not only that, because um, the Highway Beautification Act and what she did to clean up, I mean, you look at pictures from the, the 50s and the billboards and just it was terrible. Um, that's a hugely important thing that she did. But also, you know, after the Civil Rights Act was passed, she took a whistle stop train tour, the first first lady to campaign without her husband in 1964 to the South. Um, it was so dangerous at the time that Secret Service had to sweep um, the tracks for bombs and people with signs would say Blackbird, go home. I mean, this people were very angry about the Civil Rights Act. And she was a daughter of the South. You know, she could she had that thick Texas drawl, you know, <laughs> and she could talk to them and tell them, you know, the times have changed and this is the right thing to do. And my husband was right and get on board, you know, and she would meet, she would go on this train and she would tell her advisors that she wanted to meet with, you know, the most um, anti, you know, the, the most pro segregation, you know, mayors and governors and people they could find because that's, those are the people she said she needed to talk to, not, she just didn't want to preach to the converted, you know, she wanted to convince people. Um, and she had a great, I love the story of Lady Bird Johnson and Zephyr Wright, who was their family cook, and they would travel from uh, West Texas to DC and back and forth. And Zephyr was African-American, couldn't stay at the same hotels, and Lady Bird refused to stay, you know, they would sleep in the car. I and mean, there were times when, um, she just would refuse to sleep in a place without Zephyr and she would fight with the managers at the, you know, at these rest stops along the route. And I mean, it's incredible. Her bravery, um, is really amazing. So I agree that she is totally underrated. One more question before we turn it back to uh, Pete for a few more minutes. And then we close with the same five questions. 
and that is uh, you were discussing rivalries among presidents, how they got along. First ladies obviously are looked at a little bit uh, differently and not always better, but just differently. Would it be accurate to say that Nancy Reagan's biggest rival wasn't even living in the United States? And by that, I mean Reza Gorbachev. Yes, I think that's definitely accurate to say. I mean, they just hated each other. And, you know, I talk a little bit about it in the book, but there are all these kind of catty little moments and fights. And when when the Gorbachevs came to Washington, I talked to a White House florist who was working there at the time. And he said, you know, the first lady said the White House has to knock her socks off. We have to change. So they changed the flowers three times in one day. You know, she had to make the point that this is the most beautiful presidential palace in the world. You know, that was very important to Nancy Reagan. Um, what Reza Gorbachev thought, I thought, I think in the end, I mean, I think Barbara Bush kind of watched that dynamic and just... <laughs> <laughs> laugh at it you know considering it's- barbara bush is the one who's supposed to have you know the the mouth for lack of a better term yes, yes. she is very tough uh, yeah and i interviewed her for for the first lady's book and uh i actually said something to her um because i was really moved by what i had read her write about their daughter robin dying of leukemia. Uh, leukemia yeah yeah and it's just so terrible and i said you know i'm so sorry for i you know i said i'm so sorry for what you went through and she said honey we'll be fine you know she is very like <laughs> like <laughs> i don't need you to weigh in you don't know me that well right it just it was yeah she's cutting <laughs> yeah <laughs> Mr. Seat, uh, take us home the next few minutes, and then we'll ask. Uh, the, we end in every podcast with the same five questions, and we're going to ask Kate. But Pete, go ahead for a few minutes, please. Absolutely. So, one of the uh, one of the main things of the presidency is tradition. It's it's a role in an office and an institution based in so much tradition. And what I was uh, struck by, and I, I I didn't know this before reading the book Team of Five, is that Ronald Reagan is the one who started the tradition of leaving a handwritten note for his successor. And something I learned in first in line was, if I recall correctly, Mondale was the one that started the tradition of the vice president and president having lunch together every week. And it was like part of his, the deal he brokered um, with Carter to get the job. So kind of two questions. One, you know, is, do you find it interesting that, that this role that is based in so much tradition still has room for new traditions? And is there anything you think Donald Trump has done or started that will be continued by successors? That's such a good question. And I've never been asked that question. Um, I hope that you know, the press stopping the stopping the press briefings is not one of those things that is continued. Um, I know they've restarted them, but it, I think those are really important, right? Um, I don't think that Donald Trump, in terms of this book, I don't think that he's really instituted any traditions that um, have to do with the former presidents. I mean, he's really shut them out so much. There's been no discussion except with Bush, as you know, a couple times with the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, you know, I guess one thing, I mean, this is, gosh, and I think the tweeting is not, <laughs> I'm trying to think of things that are great, that are good, that um, 
I mean, Obama really started with the tweeting, right? I mean, as a social media started that in that era, it's just Trump has taken it to this new level where he doesn't have to really talk to the press or answer any questions because he just says what he wants. What about uh, what about donating his salary? That would be the one thing that Trump's done that I don't know that anyone else has done. Yeah, that's a good that's a good one. Yeah, I think that's a good one. Although he's so rich. I mean, and I guess the presidency now is only for really wealthy people. I mean, you know, some people like like Joe Biden is not, you know, is is not as wealthy at all. So he might actually need the salary. So I wouldn't begrudge him that. Um, yeah, Mike Pence isn't either, obviously. But yeah, yeah. your point's well taken. Yeah. So, so the last question, and I did save the, the tough one for the end. I took Robert's note. I didn't even know that I took his note. It's not really a tough question. But, you know, you mentioned uh, the press briefings, the death of the press briefing, and now the resurrection of the press briefing. You know, you've been, as, as Robert mentioned at the beginning, um, you've had a number of roles over your career from covering the White House to being a producer at Fox News. But now you're kind of removed from the day-to-day grind of it and can look at it from a little bit of a distance. How has your thinking on the state of media changed or sharpened over the past couple of years in your new role as a non-daily reporter? I think that um, I think it's it's become so divided right now that you can't write about the White House without having an opinion. I think people are, and and maybe it's a bit naive too, but I think something else I've just learned from writing books in general is that you can go into it thinking, oh, I've got these, you know, 10 stories that are great. And and some of them are really positive and wonderful. The only thing that reporters want, just looking from the other side of it, is the juicy stuff, right? The negative stuff. And yes, I knew that intellectually, but when you actually encounter it, like my book, The Residence, which is probably 90% positive, um, and heartwarming, and it's meant to be an ode to the African American, mostly African American staff who work at the White House. There was one story in there about Hillary Clinton throwing a book at Bill Clinton, and there was blood on the bed, and one of the maids discovered the blood. And I knew it was kind of a volatile story. I mean, it was it would get some attention, but that's like the one thing that really helped the book sell, right? And so I think it makes you. I, I think I've grown a little more cynical. Since, since starting to write books because you see the other side of it. And as a reporter, of course, that's what you would want is the juicy gossip from, from a book. But you also want people to read the positive things. I mean, we have this, I think the culture is so obsessed with, I mean, negative, 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 and um, feeding off of cat fights and problems and people don't necessarily want to look at, at the good stories. And that, that, I think that's as at the risk of sounding a little, you know, uh, cheesy, I think it would be nice if there was more focus on the positive. Pete, Pete, you're a published author, plug your book. <laughs> Do you yes, agree yes. with that too, Pete, in your book, when you were promoting your book? Say, start, say that again, Kate. You, do you agree with that, though? I mean, when you were promoting your book that no one wanted to know the positive stories. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, controversy sells. And, yeah. you know, I'm reminded of, of something I, I just read yesterday. I um, read part of the uh, John Stewart interview that came out in the New York Times. And they start off uh, kind of attacking him almost for the role The Daily Show had in making politics infotainment. And he acknowledged it and he said, yeah, absolutely. But 
you know, look at the 24-7 news cycle and cable news. He's like covering news 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the way it's covered is only meant for 9-11. Every other day of the year, you're just manufacturing controversy in order to get eyeballs. Now that it may be making it a little, a little too easy there uh, to, to blame cable news, but, but yeah, it, it is controversy and trying to find that hook and that angle. And for me with the war on millennials available on Amazon was, you know, making, was highlighting kind of the first chapter was an attack, if you will, on baby boomers. Hmm. And that's what got people energized about the book. That's what got millennials energized. That's what got baby boomers energized. And that's what, what drove coverage and attention and the little bit of sales that I had and the very nasty letters to the editor I got as well. <laughs> I'm a Gen Xer, man. We had Prince and MTV and David Lee yeah. Roth, Van Halen. We're happy people. I don't what know what's is, wrong yeah. with the rest of you. <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> what is the millennial cutoff? Cause I've never been clear on that. And Pete, you would know. So it depends, but the, I, I use um, uh, William Strauss and Neil Howe, who have written a number of books on generational dynamics. They're kind of the, the gold standard, and they have put, pegged it at 1980 to 2000. Yes. Yeah, there's some people who do oh. it a little, a little less, you know, but. <laughs> when were you born, Pete? We won't ask Kate. When were you born? 83. 83. All right. So well, I was, I was born, born in 80. So I don't know if I should be happy about that because, you know, Ivanka <laughs> Trump was born, I think, in 81 and she claims to be a millennial. And I always thought that was a stretch. But <laughs> all right, I'll go with it. Kate, in, in, and I wanted to, the reason I asked Pete about his book, besides the fact that I wanted him to mention it and we want to be helpful here on the podcast, you mentioned something a few minutes ago and I actually had written the question down and you you went right to it. And that was there was some sort of text exchange, you know, or there's some special texting group. But as but as a researcher and an historian, how has the change in technology, how people communicate, how has it affected how you're able to pin facts down and weave your story? My graduate degree is in medieval history, 14th century England. It most a lot of it's oral tradition, but some of it's written. Of course, it's written in medieval Latin, which is tough to decipher to say the least. Yeah. But the sources are there if you can just find them. Yeah. In today's technology, with with calls and texts and other social media posts, is it just more difficult to get the information and the sourcing that you need? That's a very fancy degree, by the way. Um, <laughs> well, we can argue its utility on another podcast, but yes, it's, it was, it was a fun to do for sure. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, uh, I think it's actually, I always get my best material from interviews, you know, and then, and then going back, I've always been surprised by, in the case of the first ladies, you know, I, I have been surprised a, by some of the dire, some of the, um, memoirs like Nancy Reagan's my turn that's an amazing book if you are looking for it she just takes no prisoners in that book um she actually dedicates it to her children and she says you know it says to ronnie and to ron jr you know or ronald reagan and and nancy i mean patty uh who i hope will one day understand i mean it is just like wow <laughs> so it's a crazy book it's fun those older Memoirs are so much better than the ones now where it's just like, oh my gosh, I mean, the Hillary Clinton's books are just deathly boring because I think people are so afraid of, 
of, of if they're going to say anything that insults somebody. So, but I always think interviews are the best way and just going and talking to people in person, right? I mean, I interviewed um, Pat Nixon's chief of staff and she lived in Maryland down like, you know, in a farm in Maryland. And it was probably one of the most interesting interviews I've ever had where, you know, she had died shortly after and she was rarely interviewed. And she said, you know, when you work in the East Wing, it's the, it's the king, it's not the queen. And you have to remember in the White House, and she went through stories about Haldeman, you know, redesigning Air Force One and not telling Pat. And I mean, just, but things I hadn't heard or read before that I thought were something that only someone later in life would share, right? Where, I mean, get somebody who's older, who just isn't worried about the ramifications. Almost like President Ford in his last book, you know, I think it's write it when I'm gone. Yes. He's like, don't, don't, yeah. yeah, don't publish this until I'm dead. And after that, who cares? Uh, we're discussing very quickly the residents inside the private world of the White House with the author Kate Brower. One question I want to ask you before we uh, start to close the podcast is when you were talking to the staff and the people at the White House, were there stories that they just wouldn't tell? Like maybe you had heard X had happened and you figured that your interview subject would know and you asked him or her and they just kind of said, you know what, we either I don't want to talk about it or I can't talk about it because of some sort of disclosure or privacy. I mean, none of them had signed non-disclosure agreements, which is amazing. But you That know, is amazing. It is. Uh, Wilson German, who just passed away at 91 of coronavirus, he, I, I asked him about what it was like during the Clinton years. And, you know, he just would not get into it. And he said, I'm going to go to my grave with a lot of stories. And that's just the way it is. And so, yeah, I think there's so many stories about what went on in the Clinton White House that they wouldn't say. And some of them, you know, I interviewed one butler who talked about how he had to um, meet with Ken Starr and, you know, describe what he had seen with Monica Lewinsky and things like that. But he wouldn't go into more detail because he said he wanted to write his own book someday. So definitely people like that. I don't think he ever will, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Kate Brower. She has written number one bestsellers. They're absolutely fabulous books. Uh, please go to katebrower.com to order and to get little, your, your website, by the way, is really, really good. It's very Thank good. You. Has terrific little uh, synopses of her books. And uh, please visit katebrower.com. And we are going to close uh, with the five questions. Are you ready? Oh, man. I don't know if I'll ever be ready, but go ahead. I, I promise they're not Pete seat gotcha <laughs> questions. I promise. Oh. First question. What was your first job? Okay. Um, I was a newspaper reporter actually when I was 16 in high school. I just freelance did a few little stories here and there. Second question. What was your first concert? New kids on the block. Oh, <laughs> Shouldn't forgive, me, forgive me, that was editorial. I apologize. Hey, Pete, Pete Seed, our co-host, what was your first job? 
Um, I helped do catering at a local county fair for the uh, restaurant my mom worked at. Up in northern Indiana? Yep. What was your first concert? The Monkees, the greatest band ever. Oh my, y'all, y'all are 0 for 2. <laughs> That's much cooler than New Kids, than NKOTB, I gotta say. The Monkees, much cooler. What, what, was your, what was your first concert, Robert? Van Halen. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, since you guys are such close friends and this is Pete's first appearance on the podcast, so I'll ask these questions uh, to the both of you. Uh, both of you. Uh, Kate, you go first. Uh, third question, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Oh my gosh. I really like depressing. So I'm going to go. I love William Styron and I love Sophie's Choice. I just think it's beautifully written. That's a real bummer though. <laughs> Pete? You know, it's a book I read recently actually called To Obama. And I don't recall the, the name of the author, but it's about the letters that Barack Obama would answer every night as president. 10 letters a day. Oh, wow. And the author got a hold of the letters, talked to the people that wrote to Barack Obama, was able to see his responses. It's really an interesting cool. insight into him in his years as president. What a great idea. Because those letters are incredible. The 10 letters they would pick every yeah. night to show him. That's a great idea. I'm looking that book up. Number four, if you could witness any event in history be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? <laughs> oh my gosh. Pete, you go first. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm just glad Kate has to go first. So I have an oh extra minute God. to think about it. Oh, I, we've had some really, really good answers on these. Oh gosh. I guess walking on the moon. <laughs> you can't yeah, I mean, that's that. the first thing that comes to my mind too. And I, I feel like oh, it's yeah. a cop out, but <laughs> How about about an Earth-based event? Oh. You want to pick something positive. Um, you know, I, I mean, an Earth-based event. Any time in history. Correct. Oh, my gosh. There's so many. I guess the signing of the, the Declaration of Independence or something like that. Yeah, that'd be a good one. See That's been very, very popular. Pete? I was, I was going to go with Constitution. Last quote, last, sure, sure. That's actually been very popular. Uh, last question. And the, and the most popular answers to these questions are people in Kate's book. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? And could you guarantee that they would be completely? Yep. Okay. Mm. They answer all your questions, never to be repeated for two hours. Mm. Uh, I actually, I actually probably would pick Obama just because I'd, I'd be very curious what he would be like if he was actually not overthinking every answer. Pete, I would go with Elton John. <laughs> you looking for fashion advice? No, mostly. I just think he's an interesting personality. And for one of those two hours, I would just make him do a private concert. Well, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. That is a first. <laughs> Barack Obama has been uh, suggested several times and probably the, and I would have to ask Chris Spangle, probably the second most popular would have been uh, George W. Bush. Who's the most popular? 
I think I think Obama, Barack Obama, has been mentioned more than anyone else. Uh, George W. Bush is is you know I don't have a tally, but he's probably one or two behind. As a history nut, I would love to talk to George W. Bush uh, yeah. just because he's a history nut and to have that conversation. Uh, but I mean, I would I would walk across broken glass to have dinner with Barack Obama. I mean, that would be a terrific conversation. Yeah. Uh, you want you know you want to talk to people. And one of the reasons that I started this podcast, besides just I like to ask questions and talk to people who've done stuff. Uh, and Pete does a good job when we have our conversations. It's always informative and, edu- and, and educational to talk to someone who was in the room. Mm-hmm. One of the best books I've ever read is Ken Edelman's book, Reagan at Reykjavik. Mm-hmm. about the summit between Gorbachev and, and, and Reagan and Pete, if, if, Pete, if you haven't read it or, or Kate, if you haven't, it is, ter- he is there. He's not in the room the whole time, but he's in the next room. Most of the time I actually reached out to him. I would love to talk to him on the podcast, but he was there. I want to talk to people who were in the room or wrote books about people who were in the room. Like, let me chronicle this for you so that you get the inside story and not what you just read in the media. And one of the reasons that I, I reached out to you and uh, through Pete, is because the meticulous research you've done, the fact that the reviews are all so fabulous, and to talk to someone like like you who says, "Well, let me tell you when I interviewed Jimmy Carter, that's what this podcast is about," and is kindles my love of history. Pete, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 you know, I I thoroughly enjoy working with Kate. I've had the opportunity to talk to her for two books now, uh, First in Line and Team of Five, and you know, as someone who has quote unquote been in the room for some of those moments, like the one we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, January 7th, 2009, when all the living presidents were in the Oval Office in the White House for the first time in in a generation together. Um, it's, it's incredible to be able to share that. And, you know, what I enjoyed so much about working at the White House and something I will, I will never forget was being able to take friends and family through the West Wing to show them the Oval Office. And, you know, you, you take some people there and they start crying. They, mm-hmm. you know, they, they're not in the room to hear decisions being made, but they're effectively in the room, the most powerful room in the entire world. And they can feel the presence of the giants who have come before them. And, um, and reading a book like Kate's, uh, Kate's book, not just this one, but all of the books she's written, really does put you in that room in, at that time so you can get that same feeling. I wish, well, I'm sure you wish you got a, a, a signed a photo of these guys together, right? Didn't they each sign like 20 of them or something? I have the number in the book. So I, I actually have one. You do, and, and it's not one of those, but it is one that I have collected on my own. Wow. I got all five, and it's a photo of me with them. Oh, that's great! And they, yeah, that's that. amazing. Yeah. Um, I went, I went to uh, staffers. I actually emailed Josh Ernest out of nowhere. Didn't even know the guy. Such a nice guy. Said, "Hey, yeah, can you yeah. help me out?" He's like, "Send it this way. Send it to Carter's. Obviously, forty-one and forty-three. The hardest was Clinton." His team would not get back to me, so I had to go, and you'll appreciate this, Robert. I had to go to Kokomo, Indiana during the 2016 campaign, a rally for Hillary Clinton with Bill Clinton. I had to pay $10 to the to the Howard County Democratic Club to go to their little pancake breakfast to get Bill Clinton to sign it. He took <laughs> everything backstage to sign. His staffer came out with only my photo, and he said, whose is this? And I said, you know, that's mine, and 
he kind of questioned me about it. And I said, well, that's me in the photo. And he just looked at me, sighed, handed it and said, congrats, you got all five. (laughs) (laughs) Had to quote Caddyshack again. Hey, judge, cheer up. (laughs) (laughs) Pete, thank you so much for joining us as co-host. Hopefully this will be first of many. Terrific questions. Uh, You brought a lot to it and, and let's do this again soon. Our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast has been Kate Anderson Brower, best-selling author. You can find her books at katebrower.com. That's katebrower.com. Kate, thank you so much for your time. It was an absolute blast to talk to you, and we're very grateful. Well, thank you so much. It was fun to talk to such a history buff and to see Pete, to talk to Pete again, too. So thank you both. It was great. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.